So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 28. And here at Faith Bible Church, if you're visiting with us this morning, we stand for the reading of God's Word because it is the voice of God from the pages of Scripture. And so we stand together as we read it out of respect. First Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now it reminds you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles and worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by the man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God will put, has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who has put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Lord God, you have done marvelous things in raising your Son from the dead. Jesus, you became a man, you died 
and you rose again. And that's why we're here today. That's why we are gathered here today, to celebrate and to honor you. Lord, I pray that you would direct our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, and that we would see you, Lord Christ, and we would honor you. Help us to understand the resurrection afresh. Spirit, please convict us. Please impress these truths on our hearts. Help us to feel the force of the reality of the resurrection. Bless this time. Bless the preaching of your word. Help us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what we're celebrating today, the resurrection, is foolishness to our culture. I mean, think about what we believe, right? What do we believe? We believe that when you die, we will all die. When we die, we go, our souls are stripped from our body, and that soul, that disembodied soul, goes to an intermediate state, either of reward or punishment, and then in the, uh, later in the future, that soul is put into a body that is in continuity with our body here and now. I mean, think about that, right? That, 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 the, that our matter is going to decompose in the grave, our bones, our, our body, our flesh, our muscle tissue. It's all going to decompose in the grave. We're going to go back to dust. And then in the future, in the future... God, by his creative power, the power that spoke all things into existence, will reconstitute our bodies and put our souls back into it. Either a resurrection for reward or a resurrection for eternal punishment. And that just sounds crazy, doesn't it? It just sounds weird. It sounds like something out of science fiction. It's just odd. So it's foolishness to our culture. It's foolish because... If you, if you kind of align with most of, let's say, uh, the scientific community, it, there's nothing after death. You can't prove that anything's supernatural or miraculous. So the, 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 the view is that this life is all that there is. When you die, it's over. There is no more existence. But it's also foolish to some, even some other religions, or even some other Christians would say this, that the spiritual transcends the physical, and so when your soul is taken from your body, you go to be with God in heaven, yes, there's a, there's a spiritual communion, but that's so much better, why would you ever return to your body? The resurrection sounds foolish. And that's really what was going on in the Corinthian culture. You see, the Greco-Roman culture at that, that time despise the resurrection because they look down on the body. Yes, the, maybe the body's useful for a time, but it's either a prison for the soul. It's a prison for the soul, and so if your soul is separated from your body, that's a release. That's a release from prison. Or, or maybe uh, they would say, you know, that, that the body, it's, it's okay, but it's, but it's just not as good as a spiritual existence. So why would you want to go back to the body? And that's the pressure that was being put on the Corinthian culture. And so because of that, some in that Corinthian culture were denying the resurrection of the dead. Probably more specifically, they're denying that Christians have a future resurrection at all. They may have held that Christ was resurrected, but in general, when we're talking about Christians and a future resurrection, why would you go back to the body? Why would you go back to the body? And so 
they were denying the resurrection from the dead. And so they might say, well, yeah, we, we believe in Christ, we've received Christ, we hold on to Christ, but we, you know, it's, it's just kind of a this life sort of a thing. Yeah, maybe there's some implications for the afterlife. They believe in an afterlife, but that's of a disembodied soul. And yeah, believing in Christ is going to help the afterlife, but certainly we're not going back to the body. And what Paul does in this passage is he shows that that is foolishness. Uh, you think it's foolish to believe in a resurrection, but it's absolute foolishness to not believe in a resurrection. And so the main idea of this text that we're looking at this morning, the main idea that Paul had for the Corinthians and the main idea that is for us is this, hold fast, hold fast to the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Hold fast to the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Let's go ahead and look back at verses 1 through 11, and here's what you need to see. There's, this passage is in three chunks, and really what Paul does here in these first 11 verses, he gives reasons, right? He gives reasons. He's arguing. He's giving good logical argument for why you need to hold fast to the reality of Christ's resurrection, and the first reason really is this, because the resurrection is a necessary, it's necessary in the preaching of the gospel, the resurrection is necessary. You need to hold fast the resurrection of Christ because it's necessary in the preaching of the gospel. Look at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." Now, obviously, he's speaking to people he believes are Christians, right? These are people he's spoken the gospel to in the past, right? In his, in his ministry among the Corinthians, he had preached the gospel. He even says they've received the gospel. So what's he doing? He's making it known to them again. He's reminding them of it because the basis of what he's about to say to them, it's gospel-centric. It's stuff they've already heard and received, and yet they've drifted from it. So he reminds them of the gospel, they received it in the past. They stand in it in the present when Paul's writing this. But it's also by the, the gospel by which they are being saved. Being saved. The, 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 it's a continuous uh, identity with the gospel through all of life as a Christian. If you hold fast the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And he hasn't laid out the gospel yet. He will in the, the next few verses. But it's this reality that he's reminding them. This is the gospel that is all, encompasses all of the Christian life. The gospel is not something we believe once and then we're done with it. It's the foundation of a building. If you remove the foundation of a building, the building collapses. So the gospel is that which we believe, but it's also what we hold fast to. And you need to keep holding fast to it. Keep persevering in the gospel to make it to the end. Now, what's this little phrase at the end here in verse 2, unless you believed in vain? Well, what he's going to show, he's kind of foreshadowing his argument that's going to come in a bit. Essentially, he's going to say that uh, if you hold what you hold about the resurrection from the dead, that it doesn't exist, then you have essentially believed in vain, right? So he's, he's kind of foreshadowing that argument, saying, well, you receive the gospel, but if you believe what you, uh, you say you believe, he's kind of hinting at the fact that uh, there's a problem with that. You believed in vain if you've done that. But what is the gospel? Verse 3, 
For I delivered to you, speaking of his past ministry among the, the, the Corinthians, I delivered to you as of first importance. This wasn't, this wasn't a corner doctrine. This was the first importance, the gospel, in his ministry among the Corinthians. First importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to lay out the content of the gospel. You receive this gospel. Now, let me lay out what is the gospel? What's the core of the gospel entail? Last week, I, I preached to you the gospel, and I said it in the context of creation, uh, rebellion, redemption, new creation, summons. But there's an irreducible core, an irreducible core of the gospel, and that's what Paul's laying out here, and there's multiple components to it. These are things that you must have in your proclamation of the gospel. You must have in your acceptance of the gospel. Otherwise, you are believing a false gospel. So what's the first component? First, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That Christ died for our sins. That Christ died, not, not merely that he just died any old human death, but that he died for our, that our is in reference to the Corinthians, people who have entrusted themselves to Christ. Christ died for his people. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ's death was substitutionary. Uh, he on the cross, we talked about this on Friday, that he on the cross bore the full eternal weight of God's wrath for his people in their place, and his lived in flesh human righteousness was counted to those sinners because they could not save themselves. That's the first component you must have in the gospel, that a substitutionary death of Christ for sinners. This is in accordance with the scriptures. Uh, there are many in the uh, scriptures in the Old Testament, Paul's thinking about the Old Testament, that talk about how the Messiah had to die for his people. Isaiah 53 is one of those foremost texts where it talks about the suffering servant who must suffer to cleanse his people from their sins. So that's the first component of the gospel, a substitutionary death of Christ. Verse 4, second component of the gospel, that he was buried, that he was buried. Christ didn't just die, he really died, right? This, this verifies that first statement that Christ died for sins, right? He, he also was buried. Christ didn't swoon on the cross, he didn't faint, he died. Totally, completely, as a man, he died. And guys like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus taking him down on the cross, it was a whole process of, um, of handling his body and wrapping it in linen shroud, wrapping that up tightly and then putting it in the tomb. He was buried. He really did die. He really did die. That's the second component. Third component, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That God raised his son from the dead is part of the gospel. It's a necessary component of the gospel, of what you must understand and believe and accept and put your hope in, in order to be saved. Raised on a third day in accordance with the scriptures. In the Old Testament, there are hints, even in Isaiah 53, the chapter I just mentioned where the Messiah is killed, and yet at the end, it, uh, there's, there's hints that 
No, the Messiah is actually going to come back to life. Psalm 16, there's hints of this. Uh, Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes from the cross. If you, uh, the, when it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see that at the beginning. But at the end of the psalm, there's hints that the one who's suffering will be resurrected and brought back to life. And even in the third day aspect, we see throughout salvation history how God delivers his people on the third day. Hosea, he speaks about delivering the, nation of, the whole nation of Israel on the third day, which Christ, as the true Israelite, will do in the future. Because of his deliverance on the third day, he will deliver Israel. And so on and so forth. These things are in accordance with the scriptures. It's not an unanchored gospel. It's anchored in the revelation of scriptures in the Old Testament. Fourth component, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as, one to, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. What's the fourth component? Appearances. Or literally, the word is, he was seen. He was seen. Um, and he was seen not just once or twice, but multiple times from multiple witnesses, from, uh, and at one point by 500 people all at one time. And this, kind of like uh, the burial, verifies that Christ really died. Well, these appearances verify that Christ really was raised from the dead. Christ really was raised from the dead. Now, now think about this. We're not talking about these things in the abstract. He was seen. He was handled. That's the language that John uses. John, one of his closest friends and associates, says in 1 John, we, we touched him. We felt him after resurrection. He, Luke says that he ate some broiled fish. He, this, this is tangible. This is tangible. He was seen. He really was raised from the dead. So those four components of the gospel, a substitute death, Christ's burial, his resurrection, and his appearances. And he's saying, Corinthians, we preach this to you. You know this. You received it. You received it. And he even speaks of himself. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. Untimely born, it's, a, it's hard to translate this word, but literally it usually meant a, a miscarriage or an abortion even. And the idea kind of is that Paul's using it is probably some in Corinth are calling Paul a freak apostle, right? They're calling him, well, he's a miscarriage apostle, right? And he kind of adopts that term and he says, all right, we want to talk about appearances. He appeared to me. He appeared to me as one untimely born, like a miscarriage. He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You remember this story, right? Paul was uh, breathing threats and murder against the early Christians. He was a foremost antagonist of Christ. But he met Christ, the resurrected Christ, on the Damascus Road, and changed not only his belief system, Paul then entrusted himself to the Savior, but also gave him this role of apostleship to, to spread the word to the Gentile churches, among one of, one of which was Corinth. So the very existence of Corinth as a, as a people, the very, the, 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 the very preaching that Paul brought to them, is because Jesus 
the resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul. That's why Corinth as a church even exists, and that's what he's drawing their attention to. I, I, he appeared to me, and I'm the one who brought you this gospel. Even though I was living and persecuting the church of God, verse 10, but by the grace of God, the grace of God channeled through the resurrection appearance of Christ on the Damascus road, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. God's grace changed Paul's life. That's how he changes anyone's life, is his grace and his grace alone. But that grace was mediated through seeing the risen Christ. And he sums everything up, what is, he's just said in these first 11 verses, in verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Does, doesn't matter whether you're talking about James or John or Peter or me, we're preaching the same gospel. Christ died a substitute death. He was buried. He really died. He really was resurrected from the dead, and we can verify that through multiple appearances, not just appearances in the sense of a vision, but tangible, seeing, handling, knowing um, Christ. This is this, verse, verse 11 says, this is the substance of the apostolic preaching of the New Testament church. And he's saying, you accepted this. You believe this, Corinthians. And he still says, you've accepted this. this is, you, you, you believe this. This is what we presented to you, and you've believed it. And it includes the resurrection of Christ from the dead. As we think, he's going to carry his argument forward here in a minute, but just let's pause here for a minute and think about application. Is the resurrection part of your gospel presentation? Now, if we're honest, we tend to focus more on Christ's death, and we should. But do you understand that the resurrection of Christ is a necessary component to gospel presentation. If it's not part of your gospel presentation, why not? Is it, is it because it seems foolish? Or is it maybe because we don't understand the significance of the resurrection for the gospel, the good news of God saving his people? Or is it because it's abstract, right? We, we do this, right? We, 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 we abstract the gospel and we think, well, um, here's the abstract facts, fact one, fact two, fact three, fact four, that I need to believe in order to be saved, and that's it. But the Christian faith is not abstract, it's tangible. And the resurrection is a tangible thing. It's not just something we celebrate once a year. We are resurrection people because our Christ is resurrected, therefore he lives and he reigns at the right hand of the Father on high. And so when we call people, when we preach to people and say, here's the gospel, here's the good news of God saving his people through Christ, you don't have to just deal with me speaking to you. You have to deal with the resurrected Christ. He is calling to you through me, as he is even right now, today. The resurrected Christ is speaking to you through me, through his scriptures. And he calls people to come to him, to swear allegiance to him, to live their whole lives in them. So is the resurrection. The resurrection must be a component of your gospel preaching. It must Here's another way to think about it. Does the resurrection for you, and as you're speaking to others, does it carry the force of reality? 
the force of tangibleness as we proclaim the truth. You need to hold fast the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead first because it is necessary to the preaching of the gospel. But second, you need to hold fast the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead because without it, Christians are pathetic. Without the resurrection, Christians are pathetic people. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed, he's talking about preaching. Remember, he just talked about, here's what we preach to you. Here's the gospel we proclaim to you. Verse 12, he builds on that, and he says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, that's what we preach, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? And here we get to the crux of the problem, right? That that there were some in Corinth who were saying there is no resurrection from the dead. And remember why they were saying that, right? Their culture around them said, that's foolishness. Why would you, it's better for your soul to be absent from your body than to be put back into your body. Why in the world would you uh, believe in the resurrection? There is no resurrection from the dead. And some of the people in Corinth had caved to that pressure. But you can't say that Christ has raised from the dead and at the same time say there is no resurrection from the dead right? And, and their denial is a denial in principle. It's, it's not just that, well, yeah, maybe, maybe there's an exception. Maybe Christ was raised from the dead, but they're trying to say, well, Christ was raised from the dead, but in principle, in general, there is no resurrection for the dead. It doesn't exist. It doesn't happen at all. But he's, Paul says, you can't hold those two things together. They're mutually contradictory. They're mutually contradictory. You can't separate uh, Christ's people and their resurrection from Christ's resurrection, and he's going to go on to explain that. And the way he argues this, he assumes their position for the sake of argument. He assumes their position for the sake of argument, and then he reasons through what, if I assume your position of saying there is no resurrection from the dead, what does that lead me to? Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection from the, of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If you object to the resurrection of the dead in principle, you can't make exceptions. Christ hasn't been raised either. Christ hasn't been raised either. Not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, so he's just building on his logical case here, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's empty. It's foolishness. It's useless. It's moronic then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Two things. Our preaching is in vain, right? The preaching he just described in verses 1 through 11 and your faith, the faith that you you said you believed in that preaching, they're linked together. Here's our preaching. Here's your faith. They're intertwined. And if our preaching is vain, it's empty, then your faith is too. Let's let's bring it home right now, right? If if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, what I'm doing up here right now is meaningless. It, it's worthless. Might as well go home and eat a good meal and and that be the end of it. But it's what I'm doing right now, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, doesn't mean anything. And he goes on, but verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So it's not just that uh, the resurrection was part of our preaching, and so if the resurrection from the dead doesn't happen, then Christ hasn't been raised, and so our preaching's broken, it's empty, it's useless. But more than that, 
uh, I'm accusing God of doing something that he didn't do, right? Literally, he's saying we were false witnesses against God. We were saying that God did something. He raised Christ from the dead that he didn't actually do. Therefore, we're blasphemers. And so we are found as false witnesses against God if the dead are not raised. Because he didn't raise Christ if it's true that what you believe, the dead are not raised. And he goes on. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, that's their position, and he's assuming it for the sake of argument, not even Christ has been raised. Okay, that's the main thing. You can't separate Christ and other resurrections. They're, they're together. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Literally, he's saying your faith is empty. It's useless. It's meaningless. It's a fairy tale. And you are still in your sins. He doesn't deny that in their worldview, if you say that, the, that, the, 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 that there is no resurrection from the dead and Christ hasn't been raised, he doesn't deny that there's not a God. He just says that uh, you are still under the wrath of God. This is why the resurrection from the dead is essential to the gospel. If there is no resurrection, if Christ didn't actually physically raise from the dead, then there is no forgiveness of sins. You cannot hold to Christ and to his death and, and not hold to his resurrection. Because if you do, then you're saying that you are still under God's wrath. How does that work? Well, why did Christ die? Why did he say that he died? Well, verse 3, back up to verse 3, he said we, he died for sins. Christ died for sins. He died in place of sinners. But if Christ just died in the place of sinners and he didn't rise from the dead, then what does that mean? Well, if he absorbed the wrath of God on the cross for sins, that's why he died, and yet he stayed dead, what does that mean? He did not cancel out God's wrath. On the altar of the cross, he did not cancel out God's wrath if he doesn't actually raise from the dead. But if he has been raised from the dead, it shows that the debt was paid in full, that all the wrath was absorbed, that he drunk the cup of the Father's wrath completely. But if there is no resurrection, you're still in your sins. If there, Christ did not raise this morning, then you are still in your sins under the wrath of a holy and just God. And worse than that, verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. What he's speaking of is the death of those who have trusted in Christ. Whole generations by now, uh, well, even a couple, some in, in Paul's day have already fallen asleep. The believers that have fallen asleep, they've, they've died, and they've died trusting in Christ. But if they died trusting in Christ, and Christ really wasn't raised from the dead, then they've perished. And the idea of perished here is an eternal perishing. It's destruction. It's ruin. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then all those who have trusted in Christ have perished eternally under God's just wrath in punishment in hell. And he sums up everything of his argument in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are pitiable. We are pathetic. Why? Why are we pathetic? Because 
Well, if you believe that you are under God's just judgment, and everyone is, naturally, we are all under God's just judgment because of our sin, and if you believe in a Christ that hasn't been raised from the dead, well, your faith was meaningless, but that faith involves self-denial and self-sacrifice, right? It doesn't make sense to deny yourself and to live the hard life of being a Christian and following Christ, having your whole life oriented around a Christ who cannot save. If you denied yourself in this life and you also face God's judgment in the next life, what a pitiful existence. What a pathetic existence. Why would you do that? You, you might as well do what Paul speaks of in 1532. If you don't believe that there's a resurrection from the dead, you might as well say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You might as well get as much pleasure as you can in this life. You might as well live it up because Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. And so if what you believe is true, that there is no resurrection from the dead, Christ hasn't been raised, and we are the most pathetic of people. So you need to hold fast to the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead because it is necessary in the preaching of the gospel because without it, Christians are pathetic. And thirdly, because through it, God establishes his kingdom. Because through it, God establishes his kingdom. Verse 20. So all of what Paul just did is he assumed their position for the sake of argument. And then he turns a corner in verse 20. He says this, but in fact, here's the reality. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has been raised. If Christ hadn't been raised, all of what was happened in verses 12 through 19 would be happened. But Christ has actually been raised from the dead. We know that because of eyewitness testimony. And you can't, right? He says, if Christ has been raised from the dead, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The idea of first fruits, you, you have a harvest and you get the, the first of the produce of that harvest, wheat or uh, cherries or whatever it is, right? Um, and what, that, that, that's the, what you would do with that is you would take that to the temple and you would sacrifice it as an offering to God as a representative of the whole harvest. Well, the way Paul is using it here is he's saying you can't separate Christ and his resurrection from the resurrection of his people. You can't do that because Christ is the first fruits of his people's resurrection. He's the first fruits. He's the, uh, the teaser trailer, if you will, uh, of the resurrection from the dead. He is the fore, forerunner of the resurrection. Just as Christ has been raised in the same sort of way, that is what he will do for his people. Those who have fallen asleep, that's a, that's a reference to those who have, are to believers, to those who have entrusted themselves to Christ. And Paul goes on to argue with this, verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Why does death exist? Why is it a thing? It's a thing because of Adam. Adam, God gave Adam a charge to be a steward king under his rule and glorifying God through his oversight of the creation. 
Adam and Eve sought to usurp that reign, and the consequences which God had laid out ahead of time were death, spiritual and physical death. That's why death is in the world. But Adam's this, this, this forerunner of the whole human race, right? We all exist here today because of our forebearer, Adam, and his consequences for his disobedience weren't just for him. We bear the responsibility of his sin as well because we all we all, that through that sin, sin nature passed to us as his descendants, and we sin and therefore we die, the punishment of sin. But there's this correspondence. Just like Adam was this covenant head of the whole human race, Christ is the covenant head of a redeemed human race. And if he's the representative, if he is our covenant head, how does that happen? By you become united with Christ through repentance of sin and faith in Christ, and those in Christ shall be made alive. Just as he was resurrected from the dead, we also will be resurrected from the dead. And then Paul goes on to describe the, the order of this. When's this going to happen? Verse 23, but each in his own order, literally the word is group, more the idea of like a, a military troop, Right? You might think of a military troops on parade, right? And there's this division of troops, and then there's this division of troops. That's the word for order there. Each in his own group. Christ, the first fruits. We've seen that happen. It has happened. He has been raised from the dead. Then, at his coming, at his second coming, those who belong to Christ. When Christ comes again, he will resurrect all his people, not just those who are who recently died, but all those who have trusted him through the ages. There's actually no sentence break at verse 24. The ESV has a sentence break there, but it continues. Then comes the end. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. What's this kingdom he's talking about? Well, the kingdom, and we're actually going to start talking about this next week as a, as a prerequisite to our series through Matthew, which is all about the kingdom, but the kingdom is the storyline of Scripture. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, that is the storyline of Scripture. Remember what I said, right? God gave to Adam a stewardship rule over creation for the glory of God, and Adam failed. Adam failed. So all of Scripture has been God seeking to reestablish that stewardship reign of human beings over his creation. In other words, he's been seeking to redeem it. And he has a plan, a plan that has been executed, and a plan that culminates and is fulfilled through Christ, the last Adam, the, the head, the covenant head of a new redeemed humanity. That's what he's speaking of. So the kingdom is when Christ rules over all the earth and everything is reconciled to him. It's put under his rule and his reign. No perfect justice, perfect peace and harmony, prosperity. All of those things are connected with the kingdom. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. It's like, why is Paul talking about this? Why is he talking about the kingdom? How does that connect with the resurrection? Well, he goes on. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Now, 
If you're familiar with the scriptures at all, that should sound very, very, very familiar because it's a quote from Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110 says this, a psalm of David, Yahweh, the Lord, says to my Lord. So David's speaking and he's saying, hey, God, Yahweh is talking to my Lord. Who's the, my Lord? Well, it's David's son, the Messiah. Yahweh says to the Messiah, my, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So back in 1 Corinthians 15, how is Paul using this? For he, that's Christ, this is verse 25 in 1 Corinthians 15, for he, that's Christ, must reign. He's at the right hand of the Father. That's what was going on in Psalm 110, right? That's equated with reigning in Paul's mind here. So Christ, he's not only resurrected, he ascended to the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father. And then we get this scene in Psalm 101, right, that... And Paul says, here's what's going on. For he, Christ, must reign until he has put. Now, who did the putting in uh, uh, Psalm 110? It was the Father. For he must reign until he, the Father, has put all his, his, Christ's enemies, under his feet. And how does that connect with the resurrection? Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is not how this world was designed to be. Which, as an aside, is why we stand against an evolutionary mindset of the world, because evolution says that there is progress through death. No, there's not progress through death. Death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. And it needs to be destroyed. For things to be put back the way they were supposed to be in the original plan of God is under humankind, then death needs to be gone. It needs to be destroyed. And it's destroyed through the resurrection. It's destroyed through the resurrection. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now that's a quote from another Psalm, Psalm 8. Psalm 8, we won't go there, but Psalm 8 talks about, elaborates on the initial commission that God had given to mankind through Adam to exercise stewardship, rule, and dominion over all things on this planet. And what Paul is saying is that that commission is realized through Christ. God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet, who is truly God and truly man. As truly man, he can fulfill what Adam failed in. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, that's the Father, is accepted, who put all things in subjection under him, that's Christ. When all things are subjected to him, that's Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, that's the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that's Christ, that God may be all and all. It's a little tricky there with the pronouns. But here's the point. What was God's original plan? That he, God's always ruled over all. That's undisputed, right? He is the undisputed ruler over all. And yet his original plan in creating the, the heavens and the earth, the, he appointed a man, 
Adam to have exercise rule and dominion over the earth as a steward king under God. Adam rebelled against that. He, he had a, tried to exercise an independent rule, and that's when death entered the world. So if we're going back to the original plan, what does that look like? It looks like Christ, the God-man, destroying the last enemy, death, when his people are resurrected with him in that kingdom, where Christ is reigning over all with his people, over renewed earth, and then he does what Adam should have done, was designed to do, to put it in subjection under the Father. It's not that the Christ rule will ever end, it's just that he comes under the Father's authority over all. But you see how this relates to the resurrection. The resurrection is the linchpin, right? You have to destroy the final enemy, which is death. And so that's why Christ had to be raised from the dead, the first fruits, which guarantees the resurrection of his people at his coming when he comes to establish his kingdom fully. And again, just to remind you, this kingdom is our future. It is a physical, tangible existence. We don't go to heaven and play on harps forever. We don't, aren't disembodied souls forever. No, we are a, God created us as physical and spiritual beings all in one, and that's where we want to be in the future. Perfect, renewed heavens, renewed earth, where righteousness dwells under the reign of Christ as king, perfectly enjoying him, perfectly enjoying the Father, doing endeavors, a renewed planet that bring honor and glory to him. So the bodily resurrection is glorious. And do you meditate on the resurrection of Christ and your future resurrection often? Do you? We could all probably say that we need to, to think on it more often because what it does is it gives us hope. True hope, not an empty hope, because we know Christ the firstfruits has been raised from the dead. Therefore, we have a hope in the future. So get rid of your ethereal, heavenly conceptions. Get rid of the cartoon images and see how the resurrection is the linchpin for God reestablishing his kingdom. And look forward to it. And look forward to it not just because of what that will be like, the food and the, 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 what, all the beauty. That's true. But the, the reason it's glorious is because Christ is there and we will dwell with him forever. So hold fast to the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Why? Because it is necessary in the preaching of the gospel. Two, because without it, Christians are pathetic. And three, because through it, God establishes his kingdom. So are you tempted to downplay the reality of a physical resurrection because it sounds foolish to our culture? Don't downplay it. Hold fast to it. Lean into it. Because that's our hope. Maybe you're here this morning and you have that mindset of those in 1532. That if the dead are not raised and that's what you believe, then let us eat and drink and tomorrow we we die, right? Get as much pleasure as you can in this life before the next because you will face God's judgment. And I would call to you, you that, is a, that is a pitiful existence. <laughs> to, to, to think that 
I'm going to die and I'm going to face God's wrath, so I might as well get as much pleasure as I can out of this life. If I live for the here and now, the fallen earth, the fallen kingdom, rather than what God has purchased through Christ and through the resurrection, the restored kingdom, you can take part in that if you will repent of your sins and entrust yourself to Christ. Trust that he paid for your sins on the cross in your place. Trust that he really rose from the dead, satisfying God's wrath. You swear allegiance to him as your king. Come to Christ if you have not yet this morning in that way. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, you are resurrected from the dead. You are, have a glorified body sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And all enemies are being put under your feet. Now, through the gospel, you, subject, you subjugate your enemies through either eternal wrath or redemptive grace. And Lord, we would pray this morning, if there are any here who do not know you, who live, this is the only Sunday they come to church during the year, I pray that you would turn their hearts to you and you would grant them repentance. They would know you and know the joys of knowing you and have the hope of the resurrection life. Lord, help us to be resurrection people where we think on it often, think on the future often because it is so bright because of what you have done. Thank you, Christ, for being the first fruits. Thank you for being our Savior. May you receive all glory and honor. You are the great and awesome King, resurrected King, and we love you and we praise you. Christ's name, amen.